This morning, as Darren said, we'll be preaching on the core values of the church. Um, I want to make sure my Prezi shows up. Let's try this bad boy again. Bing! There we go. It's a miracle, right? Um, so Colossians chapter 3, and and so, as Darren mentioned this morning, he was reading Scripture in Acts chapter 2, uh, and then Colossians 3 would be the other text by which we see the three main core values uh, that we embrace here as a local church and uh, should guide us and help to keep us firm and, and help us to work through life and as we move forward. It's actually been two years uh, since uh, we preached directly on core values. It was actually about six weeks before we shut down for covid uh, and so it's been that long ago, January uh, 2020, uh, and so just thinking about it, praying about it, I, I think it'd be uh, a prime time to just review those. Uh, last time we took three sermons to do it, so I'm going to pack it all into one sermon this morning, and hopefully learning to speak slower will help you this morning, and uh, we'll just work through today, and, and I'm really, frankly, encouraged in a lot of ways, because I feel like what I'm preaching this morning are things that we embrace at least intellectually. If not, there are ways that we need to continue to grow practically in the expression of each of these. But I'm thankful that uh, I don't find myself in the position of uh, where Al Mohler found himself in 1993. Uh, He was put in place as the president of Southern Seminary. Uh, Most of you guys know I'm working on a a, a degree program there. In 1993, when he was installed though as the president, he was only about 33 years of age, had two small children. And he was put there by uh, the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention in order to reverse what was going on at Southern. Southern had largely become liberal uh, at that point. And and so uh, the way apparently the the convention works, Southern Baptist Convention works, is uh, they have these trustees, they put uh, a president in place, and then he's in charge of the hiring and firing. And so they put him in place, and there were a lot of big issues that he was facing. Uh, There were men on staff at the seminary who were beginning to deny Really liberal theology, denying things like the virgin birth and the miracles of Christ. Uh, there, were, there was a strong trend in the school uh, to support the ordination of women to the pastorate. And, and so these become hot-button issues. And really there was quite a bit of anger. Uh, there's a famous story where he was hosting, opened up his home, and his wife Mary opened up their home at Easter. And to just faculty, staff could come, students could come. And somebody actually had his two children in a back room threatening their father. Um, They hated him so much. The reality was, uh, it wasn't just liberal theology, which denies the true gospel. There were lost people on staff. It was so bad, the first official duty he had as president was the convocation service, the start of the new year. And while he was in the chapel preaching on a tree outside, someone actually had hung an effigy of him. Uh, they were, he was hated. Well, why did that need to happen? What, what was going on? And it was because as a seminary, they had drifted from their, the reason for their existence. They had drifted from their core values. Uh, and Southern Seminary, by no means, is the only seminary or institution of higher education that that's happened. Uh, when a person graduates from the most famous uh, school, and influential, one of the most famous and influential schools in the United States, they actually get a diploma you see in that top image there, that, that's the motto of the school, and it's Christo e Ecclesia, and it's Latin, and it means Christ and the church, and it surrounds, and there on that statue, it's underneath it, but on a diploma, it actually surrounds the word Latin term veritas, which is truth. In other words, it, the theme of the school, the motto of the school, 
should be that truth is guiding everything we believe about Christ and the church. Their founding statement said that the goal was to have their students plainly instructed, instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. The school was founded in 1636, and by 1700s it was already adrift. No one would recognize the Harvard of today with what the Harvard was founded as. It only took about 70 years for the school to completely drift. And so in response to that, um, a, a, another prominent minister, Cotton Mather, said, well, we're going to found a seminary in reaction to that. And so he went in the early 1700s, he got lots of founding dollars, uh, particularly by a man with the last name of Yale. And so the Yale motto was in direct response and reaction to Harvard's drift. And so they came up with their own motto, Lux Averitas. In other words, light and truth. And it was a reaction basically saying, Harvard has gone dark. Now we're going to have the light and the truth. Well, no one would recognize the Yale today of the Yale of back then. In fact, just this past September at Harvard, the Chaplain Society, there's about 30 chaplains that serve at the school still. Um, you're saying, how does the secular school have chaplains? Well, this Chaplain Society voted the president of their chaplain society. The man they voted in is a self-proclaimed humanist rabbi and atheist. The head of religious studies, instruction, and guidance at Harvard is a self-avowed atheist. And so these schools drift. Uh, even a prominent evangelical school like Southern drifted. And so how does mission drift happen? Where, when, and where does it occur? And, and most important to us this morning, how do you push against it? Well, without question, without question, the greatest reason a church would not drift is the ongoing work of Christ in us, among us, and coming out of us. Now, there are many ways that Christ does that good work in the life of a body. He, he certainly should do it through shepherds. Uh, leadership uh, matters. Proclamation matters. What's being said in the pulpit and behind the lectern matters. Those that are making decisions matter um, but it's not just the leadership it's more than just the leadership and so this morning the first sunday of 22 2022 we want to be reminded of what our core values here at kennerly road and here at kennerly road we've embraced this reality that we value the word worship and community and primarily from acts 2 and and then colossians and so if you have your bibles open there I at least want to read these verses here in, in Colossians chapter 3. And, and I'm going to pick up in verse 15 and just read down through verse 17, although we'll talk more about the entire chapter, at least the first half of Colossians 3, as we work our way through the sermon this morning. Paul writes this, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, these values, these core values, while they are institutional, as an institution you have this local church, they are primarily individual. 
What I mean by that, when you think of certain organizations, organizations are known by their product. Nike, for example. Uh, Nike can make all the greatest t-shirts in the world. Nike can make fantastic commercials. Nike could sign uh, the best celebrity endorsements, the best athlete endorsements. But if Nike stops making good quality tennis shoes, nobody's going to care anymore. Organizations and institutions are known by their product. That does tend to be what defines them. Think about it in a restaurant context. Our family went to the Blue Marlin to celebrate my wife's birthday. I don't go to the Blue Marlin downtown and order chicken. Uh, we went as a family to Mutt's Barbecue with my wife's family up in Greenville. I didn't, I, guess what? It's an amazing barbecue buffet. I had no meatloaf at Mutt's Barbecue. I don't go to Arby's to get a fish sandwich. I'm just saying, listen, you know something by its product. Well, even our children learned this little funny poem, right? Here's the house, here's the steeple, open the door, and there's all the people. A church is its people. And so, yes, while leadership absolutely matters, when you think about a church staying the course, I would argue to you that the people matter just as much. And saying we embrace core values is not the same as living them out. A church can drift when leadership drifts, a church can drift when its money drifts, a church can drift when its ministries drift, but a church can also drift when its people drift. And we need to understand that first and foremost, what we are is a gathering together of believers. And so we're going to approach these core values this morning by working through each one of them uh, biblically, for sure, but then also trying to bring just at least one point of application to help us be anchored firmly in the word as we move forward even in this coming year and so the first one we want to look at is the word we actually phrase it this way we believe god's word in its entirety is truthful authoritative and sufficient for all of life equipping the believer in conformity to christ in acts chapter 2 they give themselves to the teaching of the apostles that's the word they're going to adhere to and listen to the word it is the word that is going to overwhelm them in colossians chapter 3 verse 15 and 16 it says it this way let the peace of christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another and so the word must be central to everything that we do now colossians 3 is one of the most intensely relational texts in the entire new testament let me just show it to you this way just so you get some understanding of where paul is going in colossians uh, in verses one through three there's an eternal focus right set your affections on things above not on things in the earth our, our vision our view uh, our our destination is heaven it's glory it's not here it's not more here it's not more stuff bigger bank accounts nicer home prettier boat it's this is that you can have things that's that's fine steward them well right but that's not our goal our goal is eternity our goal is eternal. Uh, so he moves from that into personal holiness, how that should drive the way we live on a daily basis. He then recognizes that a primary way that our holiness or sinfulness plays out is the way we relate to other people. Uh, you just spent weeks intensely together with family and friends, and, and so suddenly the tests of your sanctification become uh, lots of busyness and loudness. Uh, we, we, we had a wonderful time with my wife's family. That, that also means 19 people in one home. And I think, I think I'll, I'll get this number right, 
I think, seven under the age of eight. That spells out with one word, noise, with an exclamation, like just happy noise. My, our youngest niece took her first steps this week. You cannot imagine the volume of excited aunts and grandmother when baby takes first steps, right? It's just, it's noise, noise, noise. And so you either embrace it and you love them or you resent it and you become the Grinch, right? And, but, but it's in those moments of relationships that our sinfulness so frequently is exposed. I mean, let's just be honest. You, let you and I do whatever we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, and we're happy. That's the essence of our happiness. Let us be, we think this, let it be God, be God of my own world. In the way we do church life with other people, uh, let's meet when I want to meet, how we want to meet, uh, where I want to meet, let's do what I want to do when we meet, and then I'll be happy. And then the problem is you get thrown into a body, a family of believers, and guess what? You don't get it your way. You don't get to choose the menu, so to speak. And so relational sins, Paul is working through with the church in Colossae. And then, so then he starts telling them what the atmosphere of the church really should be like. And he ends with this stunning statement, let everything then be bind you together. Above all these, verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The language that he used, this binding, could be a reference to a small chain or to the actual tendons and sinews that hold your muscles to your bones. In other words, the very structure of the church, the existence of the church relies on love for one another. I care about you more than I do about myself. I honor you before I honor me. I want you to be preferred over me. I want your rights, not my rights. Your liberties, not my liberties. Your well-being, not my well-being. I'm going to love you. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to seek for your growth and your betterment. And so all of this should chain us and bind us together. And after all of that, you come to verse 15, and he drops this huge bomb, and. All of that now, and. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Why do they need that? Why does this even matter? Because what had happened in Colossae is what happens in churches today. What had crept in was a mindset of me rather than thee, right? Uh, Colossians 2, 18 and 19 he directs their attention to how there's some false teaching creeping into the church. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. The problem in Colossae was that people had been uh, twisted in their thinking and they had been informed that a self-focus, what I think is right, what I determine is good, is what matters the most. And so Paul has to course correct them. No, be ruled by peace and the word in the atmosphere of love. The last time, as I said, that we preached on core values was about six weeks before our church had to shut down with COVID. And we spent months then uh, live streaming one service. Uh, we, we went from Sunday school and Sunday morning and Sunday night and uh, twice a month, Wednesday night, to one service a week. Uh, we, we, were, we were shrunk immediately, frankly, in word content. Uh, if you had the opportunity 
to be regular at each of those, uh, you were reduced by over 75% of time with other believers and time in the Word through the ministers of the Gospel that God has put into your life. Uh, It brought all new pressures because any of us that turned on the news and really didn't matter what news station you listened to, there was some kind of argument about how to deal with this crisis and who is at fault. Everything from conspiracy theories that it's not even real, it doesn't exist, it doesn't happen, uh, to the far extreme that you're like never going to even be with people again. Arguments about liberty issues become normal in our culture, whether it's over masks or vaccines or social distancing. Uh, in our own church, we had people that thought we shouldn't meet and people that were convinced that we should all just meet together and whatever happens, happens. Different views. I'm not taking shots at any any of those views. What I'm telling us, though, is we've just come through a season where our culture is telling us everyone do what is right in your own eyes and condemn everyone else who doesn't agree with you. Everything becomes a test of friendship and relationship. Straining, if I can put it this way, the bond of love that he says should rule us. These are astoundingly difficult issues, and it's not my intention this morning to try to solve or answer them, because frankly, I don't think I could. But we're foolish if we don't recognize, while we're trying to be anchored to the Word and to our core values, to be ignorant of the storm that's swirling around us and is tossing the ship the whole time. We're foolish if we think that it has not affected us, and some of the effects were positive. Uh, That's undeniable. In my own personal life, as my father was dying, it gave an opportunity for me to preach to he and, his, he and my mother almost every single week. That was a glorious gift from God. Now, God in his kindness did not say, hey, Steve, would you like COVID to shut down the nation so you can do this? That's, isn't he good to not ask us that? But there were positives. There were deeper neighborhood relationships with our own family as we were able to minister to, to our neighbors in our community. But let's be honest, there were lots and lots of negatives and difficulties, and fighting through things. And so God tells them, let the word dwell richly. Now that language, that dwelling richly, this, this inhabitation has already appeared also in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, uh, Paul said it this way, to them God chose, he's talking about believers, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's used to put a value on the abiding presence of Jesus. Colossians chapter 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So what does he mean here when he says, let it dwell in you Richly, what would it mean for our church to say we value the word and it dwells in us richly? Well, it would mean this for you as an individual that you place an immense value, a high priority, the frankly, the highest of priorities on the proclamation and application of the word in your personal life, but also because it's what we're preaching on this morning, is a core value in the life of the church. 
The rich indwelling of the word is evidenced by change to be more like Christ. Listen, the word doesn't dwell in us richly just because I know more. The word dwells in me richly when it's evidence that it's conforming me more to Christ. The proclamation of the word alone does not show that it dwells richly in our church. When Charles Simeon's church would lock the pew doors uh, by all the wealthy people so nobody could come, and Charles Simeon is coming every week and faithfully preaching to his church that's rejecting the word, when we would think about that church and we would ask, does that church, does the word dwell richly in that church just because it's being preached accurately? No, it didn't. Because the people didn't embrace it. The people didn't place a high value on it. The people didn't long for it, hunger for it, thirst for it. I want you to know that my prayer for you as sheep is that you come starving on Sundays. Not because you have not fed adequately all week, but because it's a new day and you recognize that you desperately need the Word. We could think of it like a bachelor. If we had some guy uh, and he's living the basic bachelor pad life, right? So he's got his cast-off sofa, Uh, The cords for his HGTV uh, run across the floor. You're not sure the last time or if ever that carpet has been vacuumed, right? Um, If you were to open his refrigerator, you've got week-old pizza, some leftover Chinese, milk that's a little sus, let's let's just be clear here, and like nine different kinds of cereal, most of which you haven't seen since you were 10. But if he got married and, and wife moves in, what if you went back three months later and it still looked the same? You'd wonder, is she dwelling here or not? But if you were to walk in a few months later and all of a sudden there's vacuum lines on the floor, it's a, there's, there's some, uh, an Ikea sofa sitting here, which you know had to be from her because no man in his right man buys one. Um, we, we do it out of love for our wives, so that's okay. Um, and, and, and there's stuff hanging on the walls and there's some paint. You'd be like, oh, somebody new is living here. This is amazing. It's been made into a home. Listen, for the word to dwell in us richly means it's abiding in us in such a way that it's changing us. That's what it means. And so where can we do that as a church? How do we value that as a church? If the word is dwelling richly, it should, it must come from the pulpit. It must come from the lectern. It must come as our children are taught in children's church or in Sunday school. But it should, redu- it should produce cleansing change unifying change decisional changes christ exalting god glorifying changes we submit to its power if you are actually committed to this core value of the word you will long to hear it you will prioritize being in its presence with your presence you will submit to its authority in your life As one that has received his abiding, peaceful presence, you will want more of the riches of this reality through hearing and obeying the word. Here's the problem. COVID told you this. You can reduce by 75 to 80% and you're going to be okay. But I want you to know this. We are terrible, terrible determiners of our own spiritual condition. We are horrendously bad at it. And so it's important for you to know that as we think of this core value of the Word, we want to ask, well, then how can it happen? And I want to talk to you about it in in three venues. Three venues, the way it can happen in this church. So this is just one application. Information, exhortation, and community. When we think about gathering together as a church, 
and prioritizing the word? How can we be a people who live out this value that we claim to embrace? And so I want you to know that each of these matches a way that we structure the way we do things in church. So I could apply this in your family devotions. I could apply this in your personal devotions. I'm going to apply it in this one way only this morning. First of all, information. So we have Sunday school to inform you. That's why we do Sunday school. We have Sunday school because we want to put truth in you. We want to build foundations for you. I actually had a person tell me years ago. So we're going back like almost 15 years. They actually told me, yeah, I, I said, you know, you don't seem very faithful at church. And this is what they said to me. I've grown up in church my whole life. I've read the Bible cover to cover. I really, like, just frankly, there's a lot I already know. I'm like, hmm. I think we might be operating on different wavelengths here. I, I'll give you an example. This morning, I sat through a lesson on 1 Peter. I've studied 1 Peter. I've had a Bible college class only on 1 Peter. I've taught 1 Peter twice. I heard stuff this morning. I'm like, man, I don't even remember that. It's pretty awesome. Listen, so we do Sunday school uh, so that we can put information into people. And so if you'd been here this past fall, you would have heard spiritual gifts again. And so maybe the heart, maybe, I don't know, maybe the heart would have been, well, Steve's preached on spiritual gifts twice. Goes, yeah, I don't know. This is what happens when you hear spiritual gifts once again. You hear the truth that you are to value others around you because you need them. And so you should be asking, how can I live that right now? First Peter, which is all about living with hope in the midst of trials. I, I feel like I'd be a prophet if I had said this last year with what my family went through and what our church went through. You're either coming out of a trial, you're in a trial, or you're going to go into a trial. I'm just telling you that. You need informational download of how do I live in hope in the midst of trials. It's not as much, it's not exhortation, it's information. Your children need the stories of the Bible and the riches of it so that they can reach back and pull back. When I talk to your children or you talk to your children or, or they're evangelized or they grow up old enough, they sit in the sermon and they hear us reference Jonah and how it's a proclamation and God-loving lost people. And we hear of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how it was Jesus walking in the fire with them. They walk by faith. We don't know what God will do, but Jesus showed up, right? When we we reference Genesis 3 and, and the Proto-Evangelium and, and the first gospel promise. Your children, listen, they need filed resources of information to be able to reach back and grasp those stories to hear the beautiful biblical narrative. You can never expect someone to live what they don't know. The teens right now are being taught on apologetics. I love the fact that we live in a church that's not afraid to deal with hard questions. We're not scared of it, so let's train them to think evangelistically, to think apologetically, that there are good answers. It's information. You should prioritize information. I, I, I'm not going to be ashamed to tell you that as a shepherd. Prioritize. You can't know what you don't know. But then there's exhortation. That's this right now. Exhortation is dynamically different than information. Exhortation is the joyful proclamation of the truths of the word and of the gospel brought to bear on your life in an applicable way calling you and I to grow and change. This is the moment where we all get to hear the same thing at the same time. This is the moment where that fuels your lunchtime conversations, your dinner table conversations, your conversations throughout the rest of the week. Hey, what did God teach you? What's one thing you remember from the sermon and that God impacted you, that he encouraged you or he convicted you, that he challenged you or rebuked you? And so I'm telling you, prioritize exhortation. 
Prioritize it. And then the third one would be through community. And this matches the way we learn. All of us learn this way. You've got to have information, informational resources to pull back on, to reach back on. So you've got to have that kind of informational download. You need exhortation because God is the, it's the foolishness of preaching. Right? But then it's very clear in the Bible you grow from community instruction. As we sit and we discuss the Word, as we, you lean into your spiritual gifts and you lean into other spiritual gifts, and as you talk about the, the season of life you're in and that what God is doing in your life and how He's bringing this to bear and how He's impacting you, you can start to grow and flourish. And so this year we're rolling out life groups. In just a few weeks, several of you will get emails whether they're inviting you to be a host family or whether they're inviting you to be a facilitator so that by next fall, we can unroll life groups where we're gathering together a few times a month in smaller group settings to discuss and understand the things that we're learning together because that's one of the ways we grow and change. Listen, if all you ever got was information and exhortation, you're going to miss out on a huge way that God intends you to grow. And that's through relational connection with other believers. And so I want to challenge you, if you believe the core value, do not just embrace it intellectually, but prove it. Prove it. Listen to me. Prove it. Prove it, folks. Through the actual prioritization of it. We all play a role in whether or not this church will drift. Your role in this regard is to not just say this church values the word, but I value the word. Because the church is its people, in fact. And so we have the word, but we have worship. We absolutely see as a core value this dynamic of worship. We, we frame it this way, about what we believe genuine worship to be. We believe genuine worship is grounded in truth and overflows from a heart of gratitude for the purpose of God's glory alone. Now, I probably should have said this at the beginning, but I just want to hit pause just for a moment. I by no means mean <laughs> that there are not literally countless thousands, if not millions of churches that don't believe these same things or, or other believers that believe these same things. All I'm saying is that this is where we've chosen to put value as a church. So no way am I saying we're better than all these others. But we do want to live in these values. And so we believe genuine worship, grounded in truth and overflows from a heart of gratitude for the purpose of God's glory alone. In verse 16, he, he comes at it again in Colossians 3. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Now he throws this in here, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, there's an emphasis here, dual emphasis on the word and singing that shows that they're connected, but also that there's some differences. First, first we should think of singing as one expression of teaching and admonishing, but not as the only method of teaching and admonishing. And I don't think that's an error we've gone down. I've never heard anybody say, um, let's have no more sermon and only sing every Sunday. Nobody's ever ever asked that. But it is helpful for us to remember that when we're singing His Robes for Mine or His Verses Anew or Before the Throne of God Above or, or any of these other songs, hymns that we sing, that it is a way of teaching and admonishing. So even when I prayed this morning, this isn't just Steve made a prayer that we're singing to God about him. That's part of the God-glorifying aspect. But we're also singing to each other about him. And so there's a power of teaching and admonishing when people who are living it are singing it. And so we are joyfully proclaiming. So first of all, he's telling us that from the text. Second, second, they both are flowing out of the rule of peace in the rich dwelling of the word. People 
who are not people of the word will not sing well. I'm not talking about carrying a tune. I'm talking about genuine heart worship. Now, um, when I was growing up in, uh, in, in public school, uh, we said the Pledge of Allegiance every day. Uh, my son, I'm not just a little proud of this, is captain of Crossroads Intermediate School announcement team. And so he leads them in the, saying the Pledge of Allegiance every day. It's pretty cool. I think it's cool. You might, I don't care what you do. I think it's cool. So anyway, proud of it. But guess what a lot of kids do? Same thing we did, same thing I did. It just becomes rote, right? Like we know it. Bam. Just say, I pledge allegiance to the flag, United States of America. We just do it. But then there'll be moments when that just hits you in a different way, right? And so enough of you are old enough to remember 9-11. Something just hits you in a different way. Something stands out to you. You're engaged with it, or you want to sing my country, tis of thee, and, and suddenly you're engaged with it. Something happens. What Paul is telling us is that when believers are filled with the Word, when the Word's dwelling in you richly, it's going to hit you a different way. So you and I can show up and we can do corporate worship, let's just together worship as a church, in a way that's just rote, got it, got it. Or in a way that it's dwelling richly in you, it's starting to come out of you, and you're invested in it. He's telling us that's how you ought to be worshiping. It ought to be coming out of a heart affected, out of a joyful expression, a a, a gratitude, an amazement for the glory of God. And so then thirdly, that they both happen in this atmosphere of wisdom. It should come out of a mindset of wisdom. And so... Uh, when we've talked about this before, we've talked about what is the difference between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, quite truthfully, because some of you are wondering this morning what is, is the difference. There are, there, is, there are distinctives that mark each one of these, most clearly between psalms and hymns. Um, this pushed back against uh, one form of the refer- Reformed um, church that says you should only sing the Psalter. Very clearly, early church, they had their own songs. Uh, we don't know what those are. They weren't inspired that way. But, but you have psalms, you have hymns, you have spiritual songs. There's actually tremendous overlap. What we can say this because of wisdom and the word dwelling is the lyrics must be truth. They must be accessible to sing, right? Uh, they must, be, must reflect who God is and glorify him. There you go. And so you're singing these out, and, and the reality is it comes out of a life of worship so that we can see this reflected in just some of the psalms. So if you were a Jew and you were sorrowful, you would sing things like Psalm 42. Your heart would be groaning as a deer pants for flowing streams. So my soul, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Or maybe when you're rejoicing. Rejoicing, like uh, my brother-in-law was asking us, what was it like when we were sitting in the oncologist's office and Dr. Wells looked at us and he was like, so what's it like to be cancer-free? And we're just like, uh, in total shock and like disbelief and, and belief. But uh, the best way I can explain it to, to my one brother-in-law, I said, have you ever gotten to the end of a semester where you've had all this work to do? Um, ladies, you probably could totally 
identify with this with cooking. Like you've got all this stuff to do or Christmas preparations that you've done all this work, right? And it's, it's done, like it's whatever. The last box is checked, but your emotions have not arrived that the last box is checked yet, right? It takes you a solid 24, 48 hours. Your blood pressure's still up. Your mind's still raised. You're still, uh, I should be doing something because you've had to do something every second of every day for like the last three weeks. That's how it felt. It was unbelievable. But yet it is rejoicing or, or sitting sitting in uh, Bethany Dalton's living room holding that new little guy. He's so adorable. You would turn to something like Psalm 9. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Or perhaps when you're hurt, when you've been betrayed, abused, assaulted. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Corporate worship gives you the opportunity to put singing expression to the reality of life. It puts a tune to the song your heart is already singing. And it will hit you in different seasons and at different moments. Some of you know this. Some of you, this will come as a surprise to you. Every Sunday when the songs are picked, they actually are intended to match the sermon. The scripture reading, the lyrics, and sometimes, I just want you to know this, we try to do that intentional, but sometimes we have to plan out those services three months, four months in advance, and we just trust the Lord for it. And so a great example of this was uh, going through our Advent series. When, when we picked the songs, I had no idea what I'd be preaching on for Advent. It just was four months away, little thing, little, couple, three things going on in life, didn't have an Advent series picked. And then suddenly we got to several of those Sundays, and songs we were singing are the same exact theme and so there was even one Sunday in particular, I was doing the sermon prep, I was like, oh, I better look up and see what the songs are this Sunday, because I want to switch a couple of them around. And I got there, and they were the exact ones I wanted to put in. That was God sovereignly uh, ordaining what we needed to be worshiping with. They're intended, though, to drive our hearts to the truths of the word that we're going to examine and pay attention. Do you pay attention while you're singing? I hope you do. I hope it's not just like some kid in sixth grade, I pledge allegiance to the flag. United States of America. But there's a heart engagement that recognizes it's intended to give expression to your real life. We live in a material world, as the material girl sang. And giving, things like giving and our offerings help to remind us that this world and its riches are not our satisfaction or goal, but glorious. Offerings are worship. There is a place for social media and it's, their outlets and the friendships that we form on social media. There's a place for a Twitter feed and 144 characters. There is. But gathered worship reminds us that we are a new nation and a royal priesthood of real flesh and blood people. Coming for worship connects us to that spiritual reality that this world tries to mask from us all the time. This world tells us, spend time with people that are like you, who like the same things as you, who think the same way as you, who watch the same news as you, who believe the same about liberty issues as you. Spend time with those in corporate church. Gathering of church gives you and I the chance to die to that reality. At least one day a week to be reminded that God is bringing people that are going to vote different from me and still love Jesus. 
and like different music and do different entertainment and believe differently than me about vaccines or masks or any of the rest of the mess, but we're united because we all know and love Jesus. Corporate worship does that. And it grates on us, on me, on you. Because I want to believe the lies of this world that I'll be happier when everyone's just like me. And Jesus says, no, you won't. But you need to be reminded that the key one to be like is him. And so joyfully spend time with praising God with people that are different from you and your chief commonality is the most important commonality and that's that you've been rescued by Christ. Corporate worship is an external display of what should be an internal reality. We see that in ordinances like baptism and communion. We see it in physical expressions of joyful praise. Hands raised at one point or not raised. Tears at one point or smiles. Worship for the believers to be a whole body experience of glorifying God. We see it and experience it as people who have nothing in common celebrate Jesus together because we are most united through Him. Now, our culture, I just want you to know this, our culture already knows this. I think the institution that does the worst job of this is the church. And I, and I think it's very easily provable. When the Braves won the World Series, and you're walking around, and you see somebody else wearing a Braves t-shirt. Nobody asks, what do they think about vaccines, masks, and who they vote for? They're just united because they root for the same team. That's what they care most about. That's what matters most to them. It happens when a football championship is going to be won. It, it happens when my son was walking through a store the other day wearing a, a Yankees t-shirt. This lady said, oh, I like that. I'm going to order one just like that. She didn't look like him. She didn't look like us. She's not of his generation. She just felt a kinship because they... We live in the South and we root for the Yankees. That's a rough, that's a rough road to hoe, I'm just telling you. <laughs> but all right, because we're Yankees fans, so we don't care either, right? Like, we're a little bit obnoxious. I know that. Why is it that Christian communities, it's like we do the worst at that. And what I'm telling you is corporate worship is a way to overcome that. And so here, how would we apply that? There's so many places we could go. I'm going to give you one direction. From verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Grateful hearts are praising hearts. There are times I have not been able to sing because my heart is overwhelmed with sorrow. Where I've literally just, I've mouthed the words. But you ever been in a spot like no words are coming out? And so I'm thankful for other people in the church that are actually singing, that they can actually get some vocalization, because I can't get anything out. But I've also been at that place in joyful gratitude. Where my heart's just overwhelmed with joy in Jesus and what I see him doing and blessings. And what he, Paul is telling us is nothing fuels worship like gratitude. So what if you made that your goal for 22, 2022 in the realm of corporate, you know, so here's a core value. I would never want our church to drift in worship. And so the funny thing is, the funny thing, let's, let's be honest, like, we're just family, we just be honest. 
right? If we were to go back 10, 12 years ago, and I were to say, we don't want to drift in, in a core value of worship, there'd be a lot of conversation about what instruments are involved and who wrote the song and all that. And by God's grace, we've moved past that. But there can be a drift in core worship. And what I'm most worried about of a drift in core worship is worship that's not from the heart. That's what I'm most worried about. If I'm being honest with you, that's what's easiest for me. It's for me to come unprepared, ill-valuing Jesus. Um, Our church worships better when we do communion than any other time. Why do you think that is? I think it's because it's easier for you and I to be emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually engaged. But the reality is we know that that should be reflected on a weekly basis, right? And so we don't want to walk through guilt. So how do we, so then it's easy to just feel guilty. Yeah, woe is me, I'm a terrible worshiper. Try better next time. Let me me just give you a simple way, okay? Just write on a post-it note or use your phone reminder. Real easy. Try to make this practical for you. Reminder, set a reminder, Sunday morning, because you're going to value information so it'll be early, right? So like 9.30, 9.15, you're driving to church. Or post-it note. Put on your dashboard. Every Sunday on the drive-in, reflect on just one thing. Discuss it in the car. I don't care if you've got some family, got some people with you, discuss it. Some of you, it would be a blessing to not have people with you, right? Um, trying to feel like you're herding cats every Sunday. Um, but just take a moment to set your heart on one grateful thing that week. That week. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Sometimes you're going to come through a really hard week. Or you've had a really good week, but Saturday was nightmare town. And your heart's going to be like this, Jesus, I'm having a hard time coming with anything I'm grateful for this week. That's okay. Be that raw. Be that raw. Because then you're going to preach to your heart. God, would you free me? Would you free me from such a mindset that seems blind to your blessings? Because at the end of the day, I'm actually driving to church. And as a dear saint in one church I lived in, she would get up every Sunday night and give a praise. And her first praise was, I praise God, I woke up this morning in my right mind. And just thankful. And I just, I'm challenging you. Do, like, say, okay, so some of you want to do this. Some of you are like, eh, I'm not into that. So those of you want to do it, I'm talking now long enough for you to actually get your phone. Don't hit the audio, but we don't need scripture read to us by, by an Australian voice this morning. But you set a reminder. Gratitude moment Sunday morning, every week. Talk about it, gratitude moment. This is what we're going to do. Because hearts, grateful hearts are praising hearts. Last one, last one. We value community. We value community. We believe that community is a gathering of true believers under the headship of Christ, seeking to grow in spiritual maturity. Now, here's what's, here's what's odd to me. Several years ago, um, Darren and Dave Brookins and I met together for several months working through hammering out core values. I felt very guilty as a pastor. I'd never set out core values. And I just, I remember asking the guys, hey, like, what do you think our core values are? And, and it was wonderful. They were like, well, you're always talking about this stuff. I was like, oh, well, that was actually an encouragement to me. That, that was called Jesus looking past Steve's bad leadership. That was, that was a good moment. If you would have asked me a decade ago, in our culture, which of these three would be the most offensive to people? I would have absolutely guessed the word. No question running away. And then I said, worship next. Because I would have said, everybody wants community. This is what I've learned a decade into pastoring. It's actually reversed. It's reversed. 
people will endure a lot of word. Even if they don't like it, steps on their toes. It's easy, frankly, for all of us to be Pharisees, knowers but not doers. As long as the sermon is funny enough, engaging enough, applicable enough, oh, okay. I'll ignore, you know what, um, 52 weeks of the year, he, he laid an egg, you know, a dozen times. I can look past those. They'll endure it. Worship? Ah, okay. I know that I struggle sometimes. I'm going to let other people off the hook. They struggle sometimes. Singing's hard. I don't feel like I'm a good singer. Can't carry a tune in a bucket. I'd be the guy Simon Cowell making fun of on American Idol, right? Worship. Okay. I wor- I'll worship with my music, my time, when I like to. Personal worship, that's what I matter about. Community, though, I would never have guessed. But I'm telling you, I found nothing. This is experiential wisdom here. In a decade of pastoring, nothing is harder or more offensive than this idea of community. When you really start trying to live it biblically. Because community in this way involves you getting involved in the messes of others, and hear me now, letting other people into your mess. And it is hard to do. Now, what's interesting is both Acts and Colossians talk a lot about community, but they do it in a descriptive way. It's much easier word and worship uh, to have commands, right? So let the word dwell in you richly, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But community is descriptive. Community, uh, it comes at it by telling you what it looks like more than telling you what to do. And I'm so honest, you're like, so how do I know what to do? Easy answer, read all the New Testament epistles. They're all going to tell you what to do. But the way the Bible describes this community of believers is so beautiful and so rich, and I think that's where the greatest help is. And so there are three community descriptions that I think are supremely helpful when he talks about doing life with other believers. First, he talks about it being a family. That's a community of relational depth. Uh, it's, It's people that spend time together, that have grown up together, they have a shared history. One of the fun things about uh, being the first, um, first one marrying into the Federoff family, right? And so I was the first one in. It, it's been 18 years. It's now I got 18 years of history. And we got 18 years of story. And so as each year goes on, I feel more and more a part of the family because we have more shared experiences, more things to laugh about. And so it's not just stories of their childhood that I wasn't a part of, but now I've got almost two decades of history with them. A family has shared community relational depth there should be relational depth in this body as we spend time with one another as we do life with one another as we interact with one another the bible calls us brothers and sisters we're all adopted we have an older brother in christ who's also our king of kings and lord of lords and the captain of our faith and so in many ways and and i'm not ashamed to say this in many ways i'm closer to you folks than i am to my own blood relatives None of our blood relatives live around us. The closest are 90 minutes away. The closest physical brother to me is seven hours away. And so we do family in such a way you should think of church as family, is what he's telling. The second one is your race. And so those are shared experiences. Listen, being... (laughs) Being white in America brings you a set of shared experiences, just like being Hispanic or Latino brings you a set of shared experiences, just like being African American brings you a set of shared experiences. So there can be a commonality when you have racial shared experiences. And so he calls us in Peter 
a distinctive new race. He actually has to push back against it significantly because you had this racial divide between the Gentiles and the Jews. And he said, no, now you are all children of Abraham. It's a shared, common experience. And then the last one is you're a body. And the body, uh, you see it primarily in Romans and in 1 Corinthians in the context of spiritual gifts. But a body is interdependence. Uh, he tells us in spiritual gifts that everybody, you need the spiritual gifts to operate in the, in the church body. You need givers and teachers and administrators and organizers and mercy and exhorters. You need all these folks. And he says, so everybody's going to get at least a gift. Nobody's going to get all the gifts. You're all going to have at least one. And that tells you you need others. We don't need a body with eight legs and ten eyes and 17 ears. We don't need that. We don't need to be this deformed Frankensteinian kind of wreck of a mutant. We need this body. And so what he said is when I build the body, I'm going to put into it gifts. And so that teachers need administrators who need mercy, who need exhorters, who need givers, who, who need one another leaders to come into that body and use their spiritual gifts. And so it tells you, I need you. When you get this, it's part of the reason it hurts so bad when someone is taken out of the body, whether for good purposes God moves them on or for bad purposes they leave and they shouldn't. It, whatever it is, whatever cutting off always stings. It just does. There's a recognition and, and there's a question, well, how's God going to ful fulfill that gap? And so body is one of interdependence. We sit right now in a warm and safe building to hear a message while children are cared for, knowing some of the people in the body need prayer right now, other people need, need financial resources and gifts, other people just need companionship and love. We all need spiritual edification, and not one of us could do all that work. And so how can we apply that? Well, interestingly enough, in Romans, and I'm just going to center on the body one, and in Romans and Corinthians, which is all about spiritual gifts, he comes to both of those, and then he says something very, I think, shocking. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Romans 12, again, the context of the body and spiritual gifts, he says it this way. Weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. The reality of the church community as a body pushes back against the dark isolation of suffering and the proud boasting of accomplishment. In the life of the church, we are not alone in our tears or our laughter. Blessings shared are the best sorts of blessings. And tears together are God's kind reminders that we are not alone. We all need care. God meets that need in the existence of a healthy church community. Now, I want you to hear me right. God is not saying that his under-shepherds don't care. But our westernized way of doing church tends to get this very wrong, tragically wrong, painfully wrong. It is each and every other member's role to enter the joys and sorrows of the other members with sympathy, which is your view of understanding from the outside. I've never gone through it, but I sympathize with you just because I love you. Empathy which is I can actually enter into your situation because I've been there. 
And positive empathy, something sociologists have discovered the last few decades, when someone has a joy, I can actually enter into the joyful expression with you as though it is my joy. Let me say this as clean as I can. In 2022, learn to cry with the hurting and laugh with the happy because it's Christ-like. A lack of sorrowing with the hurting or laughing with the happy, listen now, is a spiritual problem, not a personality one. Jesus rejoiced and laughed with those that would rejoice and he wept with those that would weep. Now this can happen, one of the things I've learned over this last year, this can happen even if you don't know someone well. It really can. One of the richest encouragements to my wife was this dear lady named Darlene Davis. Neither of us have ever met her. What happened is uh, my brother-in-law, Daniel, is a financial advisor, works for UBS, high-powered guy, probably the sweetest, most compassionate, tender, generous guy you'll meet. Loves Jesus. We called him. He was the first one we called when my wife was diagnosed. We just intuitively knew family-wise, he's the first one. We'll be able to get through that call. We'll go from there. Well, within a day or two of me calling him, he's sitting in his office, his phone rings, picks it up. Darling Davis is one of his clients. He manages her money, helps her with her portfolio. And she always asks, hey, how are you doing? And Daniel was convicted over my wife sharing about her, her own journey and her openness about it. So he told Darling, not too great. My wife just got diagnosed with cancer. Or my sister just got diagnosed with cancer. Darlene is a prayer warrior. She knows Jesus. She immediately begins ministering to Daniel. I don't know how many cards she mailed my wife over the last nine months. I could arguably say, other than the immediate family, my wife heard more from this dear lady who knows Jesus that she's never met more than anyone else. And sometimes Darlene would write stuff that was just what was going on in her life. Oh, my son was doing this, this was going on, and I was thinking about you in the middle of it and praying for you, love you. There would always be a note, a card filled out, not just a name, but a message. She didn't even know her, but you know what she did? She entered into her sorrowing, and she entered into her joy. And that taught my wife and I something. You don't have to know somebody well to rejoice with the rejoicing and weep with the weeping. But then let's just be honest. When you know somebody well, it should be that on steroids. And so I want to call you in 2022 to grow spiritually in this area. This isn't growing emotionally. This is spiritual growth because it's to be like Jesus. The reality is the compassion of Christ toward you and your salvation and understanding the impact of Christ ministering through you in compassion to other hurting people. I want you to know that a call, a hug, a text, an email, or note mean a lot in hard seasons. They're expressions of God's love, God's care, and God's compassion. Hurting souls need that touch, and God means for it to come through you. What do we value as a church? We value the word, worship, and community. And I want you to know that each of us plays a significant role in preventing this church from ever drifting from those core values. Can we covenant together? at the start of 22, 2022, to make these a priority in the way we live individually. Because at the end of the day, the church is the people, not the walls. Father, we thank you for...